Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn in them with me this morning to the book of Galatians. We are in the middle of our study, almost the exact middle, actually, of our study of this first century letter of the Apostle Paul to the churches in the region uh, of Asia Minor. Last week was a bit of a a wild ride, uh, a genuine thanks uh, to many of you who circled back to me, uh, both those watching online as well as those present to to express to me, to report to me that you were indeed not glazed over uh, by last week's sermon, but were edified uh, through our time together in what was really a difficult section of the letter. You've got to understand that as a, as a pastor with half of the congregation uh, behind that lens up there that I can't see, and then half of you just staring at me with blank faces covered by masks, uh, it's hard to tell uh, if I'm connecting with you. And so any, any nod or you know, what, whatever you want to do in terms of your body language would be much appreciated. And see, I can't even tell if that joke went over because I can't see if you're smiling. So, uh, oh, there we go. And amen. Praise God. Um, last week's passage will not be the last difficult passage that we wrestle with in the book of Galatians. There are more to come. I'm hoping to give that one to Austin. So we'll see how that goes. Um, no, I won't do that to him. Um, But as we return to Galatians chapter 3 and the Apostle Paul's argumentation in this letter, we come this morning to really what is a rich and somewhat familiar part of this letter. And I'm going to back up one verse into last week's, um, into last week's passage since uh, since we kind of stopped mid-sentence, so we don't start mid-sentence. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, follow along with me, uh, or you can just look at the screen behind me. Uh, we're going to start Galatians 3 um, at verse 20. I think I'm going to start at verse 24. 24, I don't know if it's on there. Nope, it starts at 25, but that's okay. Just hang on for one verse, and then you'll get in. Uh, Stand with me, if you would, out of honor of God's word. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 and following, all the way down to verse 7 of chapter 4. So then, Paul says, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, 
born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Two amazing realities for us to focus our hearts on this morning and to meditate on for the next few minutes. And the first one is this. Jesus has made us sons. Jesus has made us sons. Let me begin with a question. How would you, how do you begin to describe yourself? You know, we live in an interesting time and place. It used to be that if you wanted to know a person, if you wanted to know what made a person tick, you, you'd talk to them, you'd see the pictures that were hung on their wall in their house or on their mantle. You, if it was in a professional sense, you would read their resume to some degree. But now we live in a world of social media and our information age has created things like Facebooks and Twitter feeds, and Instagram posts, and behind all of those things, there is an introduction to the world, isn't there? There is a a declaration of some sort about who we are, about what we love, about how we want to be defined, about what gives us life. Let me read you a couple examples President-elect, husband to Jill, proud father and grandfather. Joe Biden. How about this one? Banjo-playing amphibian. Sings, dances, and makes people happy. Kermit the Frog. How about this one? Recovering Pharisee, chief sinner, blinded between Damascus and Jerusalem, servant of Jesus and son of the Most High. Paul the Apostle, I would guess. What is yours? What are the defining marks of who you are? What is your life? In this section, Paul tells us He reminds us of what our life is. And he comes to what is in many ways the climax of his argument. All that he's been arguing in the past couple chapters. Tapping into some concepts from last week. He states here that we are children who have outgrown our need for a guardian. Remember that strict governess. And become full-fledged sons and daughters. And it fits into his argument because after all, who works to become a son? I mean, this whole chapter, this whole letter has been about faith and works. Who works to become a son? Nobody. You either are or you aren't. You're a son as a result of a father placing his affection upon you. Jesus has made us sons. Here's how our confession 
our catechism, more specifically, how our catechism states that Westminster Shorter Catechism 34 says, what is adoption? And the answer is this, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So for these Gentiles who are being told by the Judaizers that they are second-class citizens because they are not adhering to the rituals of the law, specifically circumcision, this from the Apostle Paul is a full-on rebuke and it's a full-on embrace. Gentiles, there is no half status. There is no stepson status, but firstborn son privilege. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus has made us sons. And this reality for those who first heard it, particularly those Gentiles, was a balm for their souls, but it is for ours as well. And so Paul helps us camp out on it for just a moment on this reality that Jesus has made us sons. Some of you girls are looking at me like, Pastor Nate, what about the daughters? What about the daughters? Well, here's my answer to that. We need to remember that this letter, that this book was written in a first century context in a world that we would say is patriarchal to a fault and minimized, unfortunately, the significance of women in society. And so daughters were loved in the first century, but daughters didn't have the same rights and the same standing that sons did. Therefore, in this context, girls, Ladies, you want to be a son. Even though the Lord loves you as daughters and calls you as daughters. But in regards to what Paul is saying, you want to be called a son because you want all that comes to the firstborn son. And Paul gives us a glimpse of some of that. He, th- he focuses on two things. First, Because Jesus has made us sons, we are heirs, verse 29. You see, Paul tells his readers that they've had this coming, really. That they were just too young to grab a hold of the reality. If we were to jump down to verses 1 through 3 in in chapter 4, that's Paul's argument. Let me read it again. Galatians 4 Verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. And so the Gentiles, they were like those, those Hollywood actors that inherit all of that money because of their work. Or or like uh, royalty, born into a royal line and yet 
They have this inheritance waiting for them, but they can't yet own it. Their fathers haven't entrusted it to them yet because they need to reach the age of maturity. Sure, they're already heirs. It's already theirs. It's secure. But in a sense, they're like slaves still because they got to do what mom and dad says they have to do until they reach the age where they can grab a hold of it. In the same way, Paul says that his hearers were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now that's an interesting phrase that maybe catches your ears when you hear it. What does Paul mean? He means one of two things. First of all, one way to understand this, elementary principles, is kind of the way we hear it. Like It was like elementary school, right? And God's law was the ABCs of God's will. And so the Jews were learning the ABCs, in a way, of God's will. But another way to understand it is one that corresponds with verse 8 in our passage. We'll look at that next week. But to think about elementary principles as elemental spirits. And so this brings into it a a supernatural sense. That there's a demonic activity that is involved. That Satan has taken what God intended to be used to point us to Christ. Satan has taken the law and has made it a matter of condemnation for God's people. Either way, we understand that we're not exactly sure what Paul means when he says elementary principles of the world, whether he's talking about the ABCs of God's law or the elemental spirits. But either way, we understand that Paul's point to his, to his hearers is to grow up. You have grown up. Look from the law to Jesus. Look to what is now yours. Sonship. Sonship in Jesus Christ. The term that Paul uses here for sons, it's a legal term. Which is why I hang on to it, even for our daughters. It's a legal term that's used in the first century adoption and inheritance laws. And Paul uses it plenty other places to, to proclaim to us what is ours as a result of being made sons. We are heirs. Heirs of what? Galatians 5.21, heirs of the kingdom of God. Galatians 6.8, heirs of eternal life. Galatians 6.15, heirs of a new creation. Hebrews 11.6, heirs of righteousness. Hebrews 11.16, heirs of a better country. Hebrews 12.28, heirs of an unshakable kingdom. Hebrews 13.14, heirs of a city to come. And we could go on and on and on. The point is, brothers and sisters, in Jesus you are sons. In Jesus you have a future. In Jesus you have hope and that's stunning but Paul doesn't just focus on our inheritance in this passage he also focuses on the change in relationship so Jesus has made a son so we're heirs but Jesus has made a son's 
So now we have a new relationship with our God. A relationship of intimacy. I mean, for generations, Yahweh had described Himself to Israel as their Father. But Israel dare not speak to Yahweh, address Yahweh as Father. That was too close for the God who appeared Himself who appeared himself to Moses, who appeared to Moses in a burning bush and told him to take off his shoes, who stuffed him in a crevice of a rock as he, want, as he gave him a glimpse of his glory so that he wouldn't burn up. So the Jews dared not call Yahweh Father. And now Paul says, everything's changed. Jesus has made you sons. Abba is now our cry. And Abba is this, this, this Aramaic word you, for father, and it was the native tongue of Jesus himself. And so when we envision Jesus going off to pray, to speak to his father in the wilderness, in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is the term that Jesus himself would have used when he addressed God. And that is now ours through faith. And by grace in the Holy Spirit. Not just the formal Father, but Dad, Papa. Paul reiterates it to the church in Rome, Romans 8, 15, a familiar passage to many of you. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus has made you sons. This has all come as a result, Paul reminds us in verse 4. It's all come because in the fullness of time, in a providentially primed and perfect world, God sent His Son to make us no longer slaves, but sons. In Jesus, Paul says, we have boldness and access with confidence. Ephesians 3.12 And so by the Spirit, brothers and sisters, Abba is our cry. The New York Times years ago highlighted a, a German scientific study that had taken place back in 2009 fascinating study where researchers recorded German and French babies and concluded that these babies actually cried in different ways. They cry in different languages, we might say. They had different melodic arcs that mirrored the intonation of what they had been hearing from their mothers. Why do I bring that up? Because we, we now have a different cry. We have a different cry 
when we see chaos and, and brokenness in the world around us. It's not a cry of anger. It's not a cry of frustration. It's a cry of lament to a father, to a papa. Jesus has made us sons. That's the first thing we find in our passage this morning. And the second thing is this. Jesus has made us one. Jesus has made us sons, and Jesus has made us one. You know, the United States of America has long been described as a melting pot, a diversity of opinions and and backgrounds united around a common commitment to democracy and to a set of ideals. But right now, that pot seems to be boiling, doesn't it? When will it ever simmer down? We, we don't know. We may not know the future of our nation, but we do know the future of the church. A people designed and destined to be one people under God. You see, we have an opportunity, Paul reminds us here, to declare to the world where ultimate peace and unity are found. As we move into the second point that we find in this passage, we shift from from Paul's focus more on us uh, or less on us individually, which is where he kind of was when he reminded us that we are sons, to now focusing on us corporately, you seated here, you watching in your living rooms. Jesus has called us to be one. We're baptized in his name, verse 27, displaying that inward reality as we put his righteousness on like a garment, verse 27. That's why I wanted us to think from Isaiah 61 about that robe of righteousness. We put on Christ as a people and we connect ourselves to all that his salvation accomplished. His life, his death, his resurrection. We might say, literally, we all become one person in Christ Jesus. Now Paul fleshes out what this looks like. What this looks like for his first century readers and hearers. And as the Holy Spirit brings it to us this morning, what it looks like for us in 2021. Now we talked about this a bit this summer. This being the unity of God's people. The need for unity among God's people. We talked about this for several weeks in light of all that 2020 had brought to our midst. Took a brief tour through Ephesians. We're reminded that Jesus had broken down the walls that divide us. He's given us a unity that must be maintained. Given us direction to even how to maintain it. How to deal with one another in conflict. And also reminded us that there's a cosmic conflict behind all of it. Because Satan loves nothing more 
than the church divided. The church bickering and biting and devouring one another. Well, Paul leads us to a familiar place again today. We see this in one verse, verse 28. The three greatest barriers to human harmony, all of which have been broken down by the gospel of Jesus. The first is this, race. Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek. Now history tells us, our own hearts tell us how naturally in our sin we are tribal. We just want to gather those that are like us. That's our natural inclination. And this this was the crux of things in Galatia. This was one of the biggest of deals in the first century church. We talked about it this summer. The fact that Gentiles, who for generations upon generations, the Jews wouldn't eat with, wouldn't touch, wouldn't even come close to, are now, according to Paul, equal heirs of the kingdom of God. Equal participants in Christ Jesus. I mean, this was, this was radical. Our modern experience can't even fathom how big of a deal this was. Even with the racial tensions that we have in our day and age, giving us just a glimpse. And yet the gospel flattened out this division. And the gospel flattens out the division still and gives us an opportunity to live this truth out in our experience. God's intention for the church has always been to be a beautifully diverse community of creatures made in His image. We as a church must think through and pray about how to bring this about. We must Get out of our tribes. Get out of our cultural bubbles. And Paul's not saying that ethnicity doesn't exist. To the contrary, we ought to acknowledge, we ought to celebrate our differences and learn from one another in our differences of race and culture. It's not that we ignore them. It's just at the end of the day, they don't matter before God. Because Jesus has made us one. The second thing Paul brings up is socioeconomic status. Neither slave nor free, he says. Now in the first century world of slaves and masters, Paul is saying that in the church, this is gone. Another huge deal for the original hearers. Paul wrote to a wealthy Christian named Philemon. And he said this about Onesimus, one of the bondservants who had fled to Rome and had linked up with Paul. He says this when he writes to Philemon in the book. Philemon. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, Paul says, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. 
especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. Jesus has made us one, turning class on its head and uniting all things in Himself. And then finally, gender. Paul says there is no male or female. Now again, in the first century, this was the biggest of deals. As I've already stated, this was a patriarchal world. Women were second-class citizens. But in the coming of Jesus, all of that began to change. Jesus began to change it even in His life, even in the way He lived. Jesus made women His disciples. A woman was the first one to witness His resurrection. Women were vital to the New Testament church. Now again, Paul is not wiping out all distinctions between the sexes. He is not not advocating for unisex bathrooms and single gender sporting events. After all, he'll write to the book of, he'll write to the church of Ephesus of the unique roles and giftings of men and women. What Paul is arguing for here is that there must be unity amidst diversity. These three distinctions, race, class, and gender in Christ through the power of the Gospel and the Holy Spirit, they don't matter. Jesus has made us one. And so the call on the church now is to strive to reflect that reality. Both with our pre-existing differences, if we go beyond the three things that Paul gives here, we can bring in our modern day political divides, generational divides, generational ways of thinking. With all of our pre-existing differences, we need to strive to be one people. But then we also need to create new differences through our ministry to those who are not part of our tribe. whether it be those who we pay to serve us in a certain way, whether it be neighbors who think and look very differently than we do, we need to strive to reflect the beautiful community that God wants us to reflect. And let me just say this, a a word of caution. This is more than just hitching our wagon to some of the things that we hear in the world. Some of the world's attempts at at unity, at justice, are misguided at best. Are downright dangerous at worst. 
And so we need to be discerning. We can affirm things with the world, but brothers and sisters, in a world of divisions and camps and movements, the church is altogether different, altogether better. This is not just joining a movement. This is about being the church. This new people that God is creating and gathering into one picture of peace. A world that, or excuse me, a community that in its diversity, both in class and in gender and in race, makes the world scratch its head. How can you guys get along? How can you guys live in love with one another? It's because of Jesus. It's because Jesus has made us sons. Jesus has made us one. That's our story. That's His story in us. Let's pray for the grace to live it out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for this rich passage from the Apostle Paul. Father, as he spoke to division in his day and age, so you, Holy Spirit, speak to the division of our day and age. Father, may healing come. May healing begin. We certainly pray for that healing in our nation, in our world, but may healing begin in the church. As we, even in this room, as those listening, we come from so many different backgrounds with so many different stories, with so much brokenness and yet triumph. And we've come to different conclusions on so many different things, and yet we have a common commitment to the gospel. And to being a people that live out that gospel. And so, Father, I pray that you would show us the way. Holy Spirit, give us the, the grace. Give us the discernment to be your people. Father, this we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.